Hi, um, like uh, all of you, I'm very excited um, to hear Jill Soloway, Michelle T, and Eileen Miles in conversation. Um, within the myopia of my world, um, Jill, Michelle, and Eileen are linked uh, by way of books that they've donated to uh, this project called Read by Famous, which is um, one of two projects um, across the hall in my solo exhibition. Um, and Read by Famous up until this exhibition has existed primarily as uh, a website that focuses on physical books, um, readers' relationships to those books, and the value and pleasure of reading them. And the way in which it does that is um, I reach out to highly accomplished people across all sorts of fields and um, beg and grovel and ask them to pluck meaningful books from their shelves, send them my way. I then list the books on the website and eventually the books will be available for purchase at auctions online. And uh, the revenues generated will be turned over to a couple of book-based nonprofits. Um, and a selection of donated books, in, including books donated by Michelle, Jill, and Eileen, are on display in the exhibition. Um, one of the things that I do when I get books donated is I, if the author of a donated book is living, I reach out to that author and ask them in turn to donate a book. So Jill donated Michelle's book, Michelle donated Eileen's book, and Eileen donated a book by people who are no longer living. So that's the sort of family tree. Um, we probably couldn't fit any more people on stage, so it worked out. Um, and throughout the development of this project, which has sort of inched its way forward over a couple of years, I've had a lot of different programming ideas, um, and a lot of them center around bringing together book donors and book authors um, and having the fact that they're linked by way of donating books, each other's books, um, lead conversations. And I think, I can't really think of a more ideal trio to sort of uh, get that off the ground uh, than Jill, Michelle, and Eileen, because I think there's a lot of through ways through their work. And um, Matt Sussman, who is a uh, Bay Area-based writer and editor who covers uh, visual arts and film and manages public programs for the Bay Area Video Co Coalition, is going to um, kind of steer them through uh, a conversation, hopefully about books, reading, writing, and their various careers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming out. Um, introducing uh, our illustrious panelists seems like the most unnecessary thing to do because I'm sure you are all uh, very familiar with their books, um, their uh, shows that they've worked on, uh, and their various projects, um, and the ways in which they've uh, influenced each other's work as well. But since this is a panel discussion, um, I will do the obligatory introductions just um, so you have a little more context going into this. Um, Michelle T is the author of five memoirs, most recently How to Grow Up, one novel, a collection of poetry, and a young adult fantasy series. She's the creator and editor of Mother Magazine, 
and has written for numerous publications and websites, including The Believer and ExoJane, for which she blogged about her pregnancy, and it, it is amazing. Um, she is founder and artistic director of Radar Productions, a literary organization that produces monthly reading series, the International Sister Spit Performance Tour, the Sister Spit Books imprint on City Lights, and other events. She lives in San Francisco with her partner, Dashiell, her son, Atticus, and their dog, Charlie. Um, yeah. Charlie. Charlie. Uh, next, we have Eileen Miles. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> so dramatic. Um, Eileen Miles was born in Boston and moved to New York in 1974 to be a poet. Uh, Snowflake, Different Streets, and from 2012, is the latest of her 18 books, um, in, which include Inferno, a poet's novel, which came out in 2010, and The Importance of Being Iceland, a wonderful collection of travel essays um, in art, uh, for which she received a Warhol Creative Capital grant. In 2010, the Poetry Society of America awarded Eileen the Shelley Prize. She is uh, Professor Emeritus of Writing at UC San Diego and a 2012 Guggenheim Fellow. Um, she lives in New York. And since we are approaching the election year, I just thought it was, uh, it'd be important to remind folks um, that she conducted an openly female write-in campaign uh, for the Office of President of the United States in 1991 and 92, <laughs> uh, and campaigned in 28 states and in Europe and on MTV. Um, <laughs> Uh, but an account of how many votes she received has yet to be tallied. So maybe we can, we can guesstimate that later. Totally from way. And last but certainly not least uh, is Jill Soloway. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, she is the creator of Amazon Studios' Golden Globe award-winning series, Transparent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Her first feature, Afternoon Delight, won the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. She recently founded Wifey.tv, a channel brand for women. Jill is a three-time Emmy nominee for her work writing and producing Six Feet Under. She, yeah. She co-created the theater experiences, Real Live Brady Bunch, Miss Vagina Pageant, Hollywood Hell House, and Sit and Spin, and co-founded the community organization Eastside Jews. Her memoir, Tiny Ladies in Shiny Pants, was published in 2008, and she's working on her second book now. She lives in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. So one more round for all our panelists. All right, we're all, we're all present. Um, that's good. I guess um, I wanted to start just by asking you about your selections for Read by Famous, um, just because I think it's uh, both serendipitous that um, you, know, you, you wound up selecting each other in a way, but also uh, I think the selection points to uh, the ways in which you have uh, influenced each other's work or, or gotten to know each other as well. Um, I guess, uh, so, so I was asked to donate a book that I've read and that meant something to me and, um, and write a little inscription in it. And 
um, it's really hard to let go of books. Like, I find it really, really hard. So I was kind of trying to cheat a little bit, and maybe I was going to donate a book that I didn't love that much, <laughs> something I was going to sell, or something that had doubles of, you know. And, um, and I saw Eileen Miles' uh, the copy of her book, Chelsea Girls, and it's easily like the book that's influenced me more than any book in the world. And it felt like this like dare, like dare I, like do I go all in with this or do I not? Like am I just gonna fucking wimp out and send like, I don't know. So um, it, I did sort of cheat a little bit because um, I donated my copy, but I actually have Eileen, Ma I mean I have Ali Liebegott's copy at my house. So, um, and I don't think she realizes that. So I felt like I can just always keep Ali's copy because I bought it for her a long time ago, so I feel like I could just pretend like it's mine, I paid for it. So, so I did cheat a little bit, but um, it just felt like it would be a beautiful thing to give because it looks like it's my favorite book. I mean, there's no cover, it's like all beat up, it's dog-eared, it's coffee spilled on it. I've, re I've read it and reread it a trillion times. So yeah, I just decided to go all the way mm -hmm. with it, so. <laughs> Didn't you, didn't you feel like, um, I, feel, I felt like being asked to give a book, give away a book that I love that I had written all over was like so painful yeah. in a certain way. And I felt like, because I always think of painters and what's so weird, even though they get all this money when they sell their art, they always have to let go of their work. Yeah. You know, like, and I've talked to painters about it and they say it's really hard. Like, you've, you've lived in the studio with it for so long and you put so much of yourself into it and then it leaves and yeah. it's like it's gone. Yeah. Though in exchange you get all this dough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I felt like, for, I felt like there was something like that about giving up a book that I really, like I gave up, my book was um, Masochism by Deleuze. And it's just like, I'm, I'm not like a big theory head, but by every year, every few years, I find a theory book that is so exciting. And it's like, it's sort of like things I thought about, but never thought about that way. And it just like got me so going and influenced the next book and everything. And masochism was like that. Because it's, it's like that, exactly what you were saying about something you really care about, like, can you give that away? You know, like that's sort of masochism, you know, in a way. But it's also like a yeah. plot line. It's like if you if you give up something really valuable, then what happens? You know, like yeah. it creates this hole, and then something else happens. You know, and it's like part of what I learned from this book was that like to um, to make stories out of things like shit that happens, basically, like the stuff that comes along. Like, what do you do with this? And I'm the kind of writer, and I think I don't want to say. But I think you Come are. Come on, the kind. Okay. <laughs> I think we're the kind of writers that do that. You know, it's sort of like it's like following the breadcrumbs. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of like, and then making that into art. You know. Uh -huh. And um, and I felt like that was the masochistic road. You know, and I was very excited about it. So I just covered that book. So what the way I cheated was that I got my. Emma, my assistant, to copy every fucking note. <gasps> wow. I thought, this is double fetish. <laughs> I'm giving it up, and then I'm keeping it. <laughs> and, and it's just like in this other handwriting and stuff. And it was just so funny. It was like I paid her to painstakingly wow. like write every little underline. She did a reproduction. Yeah. She did a <laughs> yeah. So I, and then I thought it was another piece of art, too. Yeah. It was mm. fun. So wait, the version in the show is that the the facsimile? No, this no, oh, I have oh, no, okay. I, I I was honest. I gave the real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt similarly kind of angry about the request. <laughs> and, like, um, how dare you? Well, now I feel like I get why I did it, just because we're here. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Like, yeah. this has been like a great week of trip. I get this to meet Eileen. I already knew. So like, okay, it all adds up to something good. But at the time, I was upset. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and. I have a bunch of Valencias, actually. 
Oh, because, good. I was going to give you one. Oh, <laughs> I have so many of them. Okay, cool. I probably bought 20 oh. over the course of my life. Thanks. Well, because I was working on that, um, on, the, on the chapter in the film, and so everybody who worked on it, I wanted people to read it, and oh. I always give it as a gift, and yeah, it's one of those books that, um, you know, both of you guys, I think, inspire me to just sort of um, be, you know, to have a voice, and that, the, the sort of just like kind of bold, brash, grabbing on to the protagonism and just kind of like throwing shit all over the place with your voice and not giving a fuck. Mm -hmm. That was what Valencia did to me when I read it. You know, I, I feel like I, you sometimes you, you write books imagining that certain people are going to read them and, or like trying to be like Michelle T. That's kind of like how I found my writer's voice was trying to be like you. So that's why the book mattered. Oh, thank you. Oh. That's really sweet. I feel like I did, I did that trying to write like Eileen. It would be cool if you were trying to write like me, Eileen, but that didn't, you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> I know, we need to complete the circle somehow. I wish that, yeah. we need to complete like, the I've circle. never read anything you've written. So. I'm going to go home and start. It's fine. Don't I don't think I was trying it. to write like Eileen, but I think that there is, um, there is I, I, I think I read somewhere some piece of writing advice. There's so, such few pieces of writing advice that actually resonate, but one that did was kind of like write to impress someone. Mm. You know, like, like you know, people, it, it's kind of, Terrible, I think, to think of your readers as you're writing, but then you are thinking of somebody, right? And so, like, trying to figure out who that was, I was like, oh, I'm writing it for Eileen. So, wow. so it was more like that, yeah. Well, that's how we met, too, you know, mm -hmm. because I got, a, um, I got a postcard. I mean, I feel like I've told the story a lot, but I got this postcard, and on the front of it was, like, a girl eating a ham sandwich. And on the back, it was this postcard from this girl, Michelle. And you just talked about what you were doing. It was like I knew you. And it, it wasn't like, I'm Michelle and I love your work. It was just like, hi, I'm, you know. It was just like, my, my, my friend Michelle wrote me. You know? And that was how we met. It yeah. was so crazy. It was just like, you just, it was kind of like you just walked into the room. And I already knew you, kind of. But then it took us a while to actually, because she was just was like, who the hell is this person for year, for like a little while, right? Like a year or two, I think. Yeah. yeah. Before I then came through again, and I was just like, hey, will you be in this reading? And oh, I sent you a postcard once a long time ago. Right, I was like, that's you. It was, it was an amazing thing. Oh, cool thing. Yeah, because it just sort of like, it was like your story hopped into my life. <laughs> Did know? I send you a coconut once, too? I don't think I got it. I think I tried to send you a coconut from Hawaii once. Wow. Anyway. Jill, did you get a postcard or a coconut? Nothing. Me and, Jill, me and Jill met each other because a long time ago, um, this sort of like, it's like your, your total idea of who a Hollywood producer is, like in a bad way, like from central casting with like gold buttons on his navy blazer, kind of um, uh, optioned my book Rent Girl and was like shopping it around for people to possibly make it into a TV show, and Jill was the, the first choice. So he was smart, but then um, she wanted more than they would give her. Is that what just, happened? I think so. And I was just like, but that, they're like, oh, she wants to direct. And I'm like, of course she wants to direct. She's a genius. Why wouldn't you have her See, direct? People were not letting me direct, like, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, and I was like, are you kidding me? There goes, so you know, the, the best thing that's never going to happen now. Oh. Like, it was so stupid. I'm but glad that's I how, asked to direct. I'm glad you asked to direct, I can't too. Have been I thought it was so tough that you walked, too. I was like, she's just like... Not worth my time. Goodbye. You know? It's very I cool. I think maybe I thought it was going to make them say yes, and it didn't. <laughs> and then you're like, shit, and you're trapped in your yeah. boundary. Oh, it's the worst. I hate when that happens. I think it, it all turned out good, though. Yeah, it turned out good. But we still have to make Rent Girl. Yeah, we do. We do. But uh, you, you directed one of the segments for Valencia, yes. Mm -hmm. The yeah. grand finale. The grand finale. The, it is so beautiful. It's so incredibly beautiful. It's like 
somebody said, it looked like you just pressed the pretty button mm. on yours. It's mm. just, it's I was, I was learning how to direct, you know, it was three years ago or four years ago, and just, I was so excited to have an opportunity to figure out, you know, what to do with camera and production design and all that stuff. It's all this, it's like a magical U-Haul. Like a magical yeah. lesbian U-Haul <laughs> that says you hate on it instead of U-Haul says you hate. It's like a like a bitter breakup kind of kind of story. And then all this ma beautiful magic happens inside. It's like sad two exes who got two girls got dumped by the same girl sort of bond in this beautiful sad way inside of a magical U-Haul. Mm. So, so special. Awesome. So uh, I guess the sort of your histories make me think about. Um, this idea of like literary crushes and like you just become so infatuated with a character or an author you're like reading everything by them or you know you start writing stories like for fan fiction or whatever uh, <laughs> I, I guess like who who are your literary crushes well obviously Eileen well, yeah um, um, and I think um, Maggie Nelson mm. you know it's really fun when you discover somebody and they've already written a bunch you know and so then you get to kind of like really go crazy so um, I think that like um, Maggie had written a few things, and I'd heard her name a lot, but then just I just hadn't read her stuff yet. And then I read Jane, and I was like, "Whoa!" I, it's like I called in sick to my life to finish that book. I like read that in one sitting. I just couldn't believe it. Thought it was so smart and gripping and amazing. And then I got to read the red parts and bluets, and her new book, The Argonauts, is incredible. And um, who else is kind of like oh? Like reading Joan Didion really late, like really late. Like I'm I'm 44 and I just started reading Joan Didion, but there's like so much to read, so that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like how I felt when I was young, uh, when I would really get into a band, like when I was a teenager, you know, mm -hmm. and I would get into some band that had broken up like 10 years before, but they were new to me, so you could just get all their albums, get really obsessed with them. That's mm -hmm. fun. Did you? Are we skipping? I feel like this is the dating game, Bachelor number two. We can sk again. skip we the can, order. I mean, <laughs> right? we don't have to go. you should feel free to, to jump in when you want. There's yeah. I'm j I just recently fell into a literary crush related to uh, you as Chris Krause. And you read oh, the, you wrote the, um, I just found that book, I Love Dick, which, um, is it, do you guys know what it is? I Love Dick. Yeah. It's amazing. It's great to read on a plane, because you're like, I read a book called I Love Dick. And it's actually about that feeling of like, writing towards an idea of a person who worshiping them allows you to kind of find your voice. It's sort of like about God, seeing God and this kind of projection of your voice onto this, this imaginary consumer, I guess, of what you're writing. And um, it really it made me want to write, made me want to write to her. I met her last weekend. I, I emailed Chris Krause. And then I read like this, um, I read this this, there's this guy who does this like weekly email letter and he wrote something in it which is like, if you're the kind of person who thinks that if you only meet the person who, read, who read, wrote the book that you're crazy about that you'll be happy, then you're never gonna be happy or something like that. I'm what? Like, what? I'm that kind of, like that you read a book and you're like, I have to be friends with this person mm -hmm. instead of just, I can enjoy this book. And that was the way I felt about I Love Dick. I had to hang out with Chris. That's Krause. how you make friends. I guess so. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hmm. See, I, f I feel like I guess I, I feel like my literary crushes are people that I never met. Some, I mean, some of them are like because um, they're people that showed me how to write. Like mm -hmm. um, like Henry Miller because he was so angry and complaining and working class. Like I feel like my literary is so much. It's either has to do with being female or being or being of a certain class. 
because I think I needed to know that I could write and that I could have permission and that some of my feelings, I didn't, like Henry Miller started this um, Tropic of Capricorn with like, I didn't ask to be born, you know? <laughs> and I just grew up thinking that only spoiled kids said that and that you couldn't, <laughs> like it just, I didn't realize that that, went, that that thought could really go someplace. Like you could start with a really horrendous thought, like I didn't ask to be born, mm. and then talk about how shitty your life was and that you could get more and more and more power and energy from that, you know? Or um, Violet Leduc has a book called Le Batard, which is like it's my favorite book in the world. Movie. And she starts it off with how much she hates her mother. <laughs> like she's sitting in the backyard with her mother and her mother's like, I don't know, her mother's old and she's like middle-aged herself. And it's just like, ugh. I'm with this horrible woman. <laughs> and she just begins it with how much she hated her mother, and then she just goes through her whole female life. And this, it's like I, I, the writers that, I, that were, I guess I think of as literary crushes were people who just started off with these bolts of anger that were so kind of, like they just were like the car, and they just started driving down the road. And I thought, oh, if you could just be, it was like punk writing. Yeah. Like I just thought, if you could be really pissed off and that could drive a book, then I can write. You know? mm -hmm. And I just got so much from those people. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that, in a way, to me, describes what you were doing with Sister Spit. It's like getting everyone in an actual van, mm -hmm. driving down the car. road, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> showing up and like holding forth. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so I'd like to sort of maybe talk about um, writing and communities. I know that's a, a charged word. But um, you know, kind of finding a community through writing um, and I, I'm thinking about Sister Spit, but I'm also wondering if maybe um, you could speak to kind of the writer's room as, as a kind of community, too. They're sort of related. There's a little Sister Spit in the writer's room right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, every time I see Michelle, I always like apologize. I'm like, I'm really sorry. I stole everybody out of your life to come work on Transparent. She stole everybody out of my life to go work on Transparent. <laughs> it was so sad. I was like, oh, God, Allie and Beth are leaving. OK, well, I guess. You know, this will be a really great opportunity for me to get closer to Amanda and Esty. And right. they were like, we're leaving <laughs> to work with Jill. And I was like, oh, oh. damn you, Jill. Really bad. Yeah. That's but, okay. It's yeah. okay. It's Hopefully, a, you know, will come soon too. sacrificing to make the world better. Yeah. But I want to ask you, so what is the, I've never been in the writer's room. What is the writer's room like? It's heaven. We call it the day room and like the, the psych ward. It's, um, <laughs> we just shuffle around in our pajamas and fiddle with food and hate ourselves. Um, <laughs> It's really awesome and beautiful, and we're, we feel very, very lucky. It's very much like group therapy. I, I, I definitely learned this style of writing from Alan Ball on Six Feet Under, where we, you know, just really, really gentle, like this very gentle style of leadership. You know, I think everybody thinks like, oh, TV writing, you know, you're there all hours, and it's horrible, and it's competitive, and, and some, some showrunners are that way. But um, Alan Ball had a style where it was like, the Fisher family lived in the center of the table and they were imaginary and we would all get together and talk about our lives and somehow sort of magically something that happened to one person would then be like, oh, that's, yeah, that should, that's Brenda's story and then it would go up on the board. And it's this very gentle, like, you know, arrive at 10. I'm like really serious about boundaries. Um, I don't think people should have any computers or phones around. So we have four 50-minute sessions a day and we work from like 10, I have a thing like, you can socialize and talk about what you watched on TV last night or who you're fucking from 10 to 10.30. <laughs> and then like 10.30 to 11.20, I actually started this because I was nursing on a show and I wanted to like have time with my kid. And so like 50 minutes break, another 50 minutes lunch, another 50 minutes break, another 50 minutes 
and then you go home. So like we're out by 4.30 or 5. And it's really just like four sessions of talking about the characters, but also talking about our lives and, pro and really processing. We're really processing our emotions and um, finding those, those corners, you know, those moments, those elbows in life where you turn a corner, where you make a decision, where you change what you're doing to get what you want. Um, it's the best. We laugh. We have all kinds of inside jokes. We have a thing that we do in the writer's room where anytime anybody says the word reach out, we all have to go like this. Everybody <laughs> hates how much people say reach out. I can't even say reach out without doing this. But, um, you know how people say that all the time instead of call or email? This is probably Los Angeles. You don't say reach out? No. You don't? <laughs> I'm in New York. The I last thing you'd want to do is reach out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. It's, it's, maybe it's California it's, or nonprofit too. But you yeah, they say, say it in San Francisco. Francisco right? yeah. I've, I've caught myself doing it. Yeah, I'm right. aware of it now ever since you made it fun means, of it. But what's wrong with call or email? Like, what's how does that word? How does it sounds just like you're? It's better? like you're going to pet them. You're going to reach yeah. out, <laughs> and it's like it's warmer. It's more it's intimate. Warmer. Is getting in touch yeah. not a good compromise? What was that? Is getting in touch not a good compromise? As a I phrase. think that's fine, but people do, people are saying reach out all the time. This problem. Everybody who's been in the writer's room now does this all the time. Right? Can I keep asking you questions? Because I'm really, <laughs> of course. I want to Okay. Are you yeah. crazy, Eileen Miles? So, Ask okay, so, so you, you, you talk about all this stuff and you put all this stuff on the wall yes. and everything, and then do you decide that these are the contents of the show and then you decide who writes it? Uh, we kind of do that, yeah. Well, another thing I learned from Alan Ball is it's like a little bit like we have a little contest when you figure out who's going to write which one, where the writers each would come, come and say, like, this is the episode I love and this is why. And this is my second favorite. And you try to give everybody their first favorite or their second favorite. Oh. But like, for example, we're doing one that takes place at a sort of a whole like feminist episode that takes place at a women's music festival. And Ali Liebgott's writing that one. It's episode seven this year. Wow. Yes! <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Um, and so it was like we were working on it. And she knew all the details. Like she just knew you know, every detail from mm -hmm. Michigan, from the, music, the women's music festival, and Man on the Land, and you know. Butches in the, in the woods with guns, like rumors of butches in the woods with guns and <laughs> all kinds of crazy shit that we needed to put in there. Um, so, um, yeah, we tr I try to give, I mean, we have the four characters. It's, it's a very specific board. It's like a, it's a rubric. It's like a Chuck Close painting. The four characters are down the left side and the episodes are across the top, 201, 202, 203, because it's season two, so one through 10. And then we just fill in the grid for each character, what they're going to do in that episode. And um, it has a shape to it, three-act structure, hero's journey structure, where you know, after episode three is the beginning of the second act, and a climax around episode seven or eight. And then, wow. Yeah, it's so fun. It's like, it's like a group, group brain filling in a sort of grid with, with story. Yeah, it's fun. Come visit. I'll reach out. <laughs> the only thing I ever did like that was these lesbian plays we did in like the late 70s mm. and 80s and we would just spend months getting trashed and talking about the play yeah. and, then we, and then we would do it one night yeah <laughs> you know that was it it was like did incredible. the play get written or was it improv both I guess <laughs> but somebody had to go and write it but a lot of it was well, a lot of talk and then eventually I think we would we would sort of farm out parts of it and mm -hmm. certain people would write different pieces of it and then but they would not you know and what, what we, could, we just couldn't even have, we didn't even have a rehearsal. It was like the, <laughs> the performance was the rehearsal. Mm. <laughs> I should talk about Sister Spit. Um, Sister Spit, if, in case you don't know, it, was a, it started as an open mic in the 90s. It was an alternative to the 
open mics were really popular here in the 90s, and but they were really duty and and straight, and it was like a very typical, like a very like a guy who read a lot of Bukowski and thought just because like, oh, I'm wasted all the time and I hate women, I could be a poet, you know? And I'd like take their shirts off and just be assholes and like I would be there and, and, and I met a few other really cool women who could like deal with that atmosphere and sort of liked it, kind of liked getting in and being like, shut the fuck up, you know? And, and um, one of those people was Cindy Anderson who just did the really great Kathleen Hanna documentary, The Punk Singer. And we started Sister Spit as an open mic that was girls only. We were pretty loose with that definition. Um, but it did the trick of keeping those guys out. And instead bringing in women who read a lot of Bukowski and thought that because they got drunk and hated their girlfriends, they could take their shirts off, you know. But it was good, it was great. And uh, it ended up being um, a, a tour because I'd, I'd briefly been in a punk band and I quit and I was, we'd gone on a tour and I was like, that was the most magical experience I ever had. To be in, I mean, it, it sounds like there's a similarity with the writer's room in that you create this magical space with these people and um, the rest of the world just falls away. Like you're in a van with somebody, for, with these people for a month. It's like, this stage is bigger than a van, you know? Like you're living in this space and, um, and it, it gets really weird. Like you forget you had a life outside the van and people do terrible things. People like cheat on their partners and stuff because they forgot about them because <laughs> nothing exists outside the van. And it's like, it, it's, and it's really hard to explain to people when you come back. Like, I'm sorry I didn't call you for three weeks, but I was in the van, you know? And especially because, like, it was in the 90s. And in the 90s, it was like nobody had cell phones. So to call somebody, you had to, you know, go and get a phone card at, like, the post office if you were around a post office during those hours. Then you have to find a pay phone. And it was crazy. But Eileen came on it in 1997. And she's come on it since, too. But that one in 1997 was really crazy because that was the one where we'd never done this before. We didn't know could we do a tour across the United States where people would come to listen to poetry? Like, I don't know, you know? And everybody, a lot of people in San Francisco were like, are you guys gonna hate each other by Santa Cruz and turn back around? And you know, <laughs> and it, it didn't happen, you know? I mean, maybe it happened at points, but in that kind of familial way where I'm sure everyone got on each other's nerves a little bit here and there, but it was pretty magical, I thought. Didn't it also start because of Michigan? Remember, Michigan rejected us. Yes, it's true. That was also part of it. Yeah, we, tr we were trying to, um, it was before we had an understanding of the um, lousy trans politics that they had and stuff like that. And it just seemed like, oh, Michigan is this place kind of weird. Like, there's a lot, I mean, Citrus Bit came out of like a very like punk dyke experience of the 90s. And we didn't really feel like Michigan was our scene, but we were kind of like curious about it. And everyone knew like a couple people that seemed cool that went and were like, well, we should go and perform at it. And they, yeah, they rejected us. So we're just like, well, fuck that. We'll just right. do a tour then. Yeah. 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 I think we were going to do a tour and then end it there was our idea. And we're just like, well, we don't need them to do the tour. Because they said, I remember they said like, well, you're kind of literary, but we've got Dorothy Allison. <laughs> and you're kind of like a band, but we have Tribate. So it was basically, they didn't need us because oh. they had bigger versions of, of what, us. You know, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. So, but but I, it was it, it was so exciting because it, because it was the unknown. Yeah. You know, and and I had I had always wanted to be in a band. I always wanted to get in a van and, and cross country. Yeah. And had never done so many readings in like what was that? Thirty in thirty forty days. We did readings 40... every single night. We had one day off in New Orleans. Um, that was it, though. You yeah. really learned something about performing. Yeah. You would just get so high and exhilarated yeah. from. And then, we, and then we would do each other. Yes, we'd do each other's pieces. And we really, <laughs> we really, really funny. 
And we really hurt our audience in one sad, like, you know, we, I think it was Philadelphia, like, we thought it would be amazing if instead of doing our regular show that people were paying money to come and see, we'd do each other's work. So it was like this, the show was this giant in-joke that was incredible for us and totally confusing for the audience. It was like, you know, like, I don't, do you remember whose piece you did? I think I did. I think I, did I do Cinny or did Cinny do me? I can't remember. I can't, yeah. But yeah, it was not a good idea. It was like, it was a great idea for, for in the van, you know, but it's like, I just think like we had all like, you know, heard each other's work every single night again and again and again. And you would imagine that maybe that would drive you crazy and you hate that piece, but that's not what happens. Like no. you get obsessed with it and it's like that song and you want to hear it and you, the way that you like, if you love a song, I'm like spitting. If you love a song, you want to sing that we song. We memorized each other's work, yeah, essentially. Yeah, we and couldn't help but. Do remember Sarah, what was her name? Sarah who was the, West. Our stand-up. We all, yeah. I've been still, I still tell that joke. What joke? <laughs> um, I want to, I, I, can I stand up? I'll step yeah. out of the light. Step out of the light. It was sort of like, um, well, I could tell the whole joke, but it was sort of like, I want to, I'll ruin the joke. I'll ruin the joke. No, do it. You it can was, do it. Okay, it was, it was like uh, a dog goes into a bar. <laughs> And, this is so you're kind of a joke. And orders a beer. I, I've been telling this joke for 20 years now. <laughs> the dog goes into the bar and orders a beer, and the, do, and the bartender says, we don't serve dogs. And the, guy, and the dog goes, come on, I got money. You know, give me a beer. And then the guy says, we don't serve dogs. You know, and he was like, come on, come on, give me a beer. The guy pulls out the gun and, like, and shoots the dog, you know, like, and the dog like, goes, ah, and runs home and goes to his little cat, Roommate, <laughs> and the cat roommate like helps and like sucks the bullet out of the dog, and said, "Okay, you got to go back there, and you got to show that guy who you are." And he goes, "Okay." So the guy, so the so the dog goes back to the bar and pushes open the doors and goes. You'll remember it now. I'm looking for the guy who shot my paw. Oh my God. <laughs> they don't. They don't did you not get it? Bullet, bullet in yeah. the paw? Yeah. yeah. It's a hysterical joke. <laughs> anyway, we heard that. Like, we heard it every night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that Eileen would come on this tour with us. Like, it was, I thought it was like, I mean, I felt like we were asking Prince to come on Sister Spit. You know what I mean? I just was like, she's never going to come, but like, fuck it, let's just ask, right? Like, I was like, hey, we bought a van that's destined to die at midnight on the Mississippi-Alabama border on a Friday night, and like, we can pay you, as it turns out, you'll make about $80 at the end of, right, right. you know, 30 days of work where you're basically working 24 hours a day, and then you're never on, and we don't actually have any place to stay. We're not going to put anybody up in hotels. We're going to sleep on people's floors. We'll just figure it out as we go along, like on the mic. Like, can anyone put us up tonight? Like, and, and, and she said yes. <laughs> and there's two, two things. One is that, remember, I always got the front seat in the van. You know why? Yeah, I remember why. Because I was fucking going through menopause. <laughs> yeah. And so when people tried to challenge my position, Michelle said, well, you can get in the front seat if you have hot flashes. <laughs> and so I just, I always had the, uh, the shotgun. And, yeah. and, and the other thing was, like, I thought I was on a book tour, right? I had a new book that came oh, right. out, right? Which was such a joke. I sold, like, two books. It oh, was, God. Like, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But, so we read in this big gay bar in, Los in, um, in New Orleans, and I stand up and read, and we had like two people. Oh, that was awful. It was like one of the worst ones. It was really right? bad, yeah. So I'm standing up reading for my new book of poems, and some guy goes, you didn't write that. It's in a book. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm on a book tour like I will never be on a book tour again. 
I'm a fucking liar, right? <laughs> just, it was like so great. This was like, you know, you, coming from San Francisco where the queer scene was so sort of punk informed and art informed and political. And so I would, I would book us these shows in gay bars in other towns and they were not like the gay bars here. They were like, people hated us, you know? Like, you know, the bar, I remember the bartender at that gay bar in, in, in New Orleans was wearing a big like cross, like not ironically or in a goth way, but like she was a Christian, lesbian, in like 1994 working in a gay bar. In, in, and she kept saying, oh, it's a late crowd. It's New Orleans. Just wait. They're going to show up. And we sat there for fucking three hours. And finally, like, the table of the three goths that were waiting for us, I'm like, I guess we're going to perform for you guys. But, yeah. And now Jill reads with Sister Spit in L.A. I did do that. When oh, Sister Spit comes through. Do you get yeah. the front seat of the van? I wish I could go on the tour. I, did they ever invite me to go with them? Oh. <gasps> oh. oh God, Jill Soloway. Well, I'm not like Prince to you. You are like Prince. You're like Madonna. <laughs> oh my God, you're like Cindy Lauper. I'm actually not doing. I handed over Sister Spit and Radar Productions and everything to the next generation, so I'm actually not doing it anymore. I love but that you give. Shit I'll put up. in a word for you. I'll be like, yeah. Fucking, in case you don't know, Jill Soloway wants to come on tour, so Let's do that. You might get a. Might get a I probably call. won't actually. See? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I will want to. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't... Wow, where did we go? <laughs> We've had a joke and uh, some amazing memoirs, so maybe we'll just call it a night? No. Um, I, um, I guess I, I, since all of you uh, pull from, have pulled from your lives for your, for your writing, um, in varying in various ways, um, whether through memoir or um, with transparent, uh, I, I guess I wanted to hear more about what it's what it's like uh, writing your life and and how you go about doing that and if if you start feeling like the the Michelle that's that's in the book is sort of another character or um, or how what that's like to see that to see to see it play out in a, in another form. Mm. Do you guys want to go first? Well, it's funny because uh, in, in I, I, for me, I think like the question is, what's it like to not write your life? Because that's what's hard. I would never know how to do that. Everybody I write is, like, is some version of me, even on Transparent. Everybody, they're all sort of, I have to be enough inside the voice that I'm writing to feel it, to feel something. And, um, but the funny part is like uh, in Hollywood, you know, you, you, pit, you, you, turn, you, you turn in a script. And then um, you get, you know, you have your feedback, or whatever. And I was like, I used to get, the, I used to get the thing all the time, like your protagonist is so unlikable. <laughs> and then I, I, the weird thing that I got a lot, which is so weird for like realizing and finding out that my parent was trans all this time, was I used to got, constantly get told that I had castrating protagonists. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Hmm. That I was like, uh, that all of my women were castrating. That was, that's just how gross Hollywood is. Like a woman who actually like speaks. Uh, but, you know, is told that she's castrating. But I guess, for, I guess all of my protagonists were, like, going around um, making it hard for men to say the subject in their own lives, perhaps, by maybe seeing them or something. You know, having... Can you imagine producers gay... are like, these characters are too misogynistic? Well, I mean, like... That... We're slowly but surely tr turning the planet, but it hasn't happened yet. We're, like, a year into the, to the revolution. It's just barely <laughs> happening. It's only starting. But... Um, yeah, that's, I think, the weird thing, and it happens with Transparent all the time, too, where, like, the three kids on Transparent seem like people I would love, and they're const I'm constantly told that they're horrible people and who would like these people. And, um, 
Wow. Yeah, it's weird. I think, especially when you write women, um, if anybody other than a woman is reading it, they are, like, I, I had somebody tell me about, like, Afternoon Delight um, that, like, it got some bad reviews from some guys, and, and this writer for, um, from the New York Times, Karina Chicano, <laughs> told me that, like, a lot of male critics review whether they would want to date the protagonist. Oh, oh, they don't even realize it, but they're trying to figure out if, if, if they're attracted to her and what she's doing. And they can't help but review her attractiveness to them. Oh, oh I know. It's sickening. Huh. It's so sickening. Wow. Wow. But um, I'm sorry to get so upset. I really do feel like it's changing. I honestly feel like you just, it's... just, like, sexually abused a whole room. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's so gross. That's why they shouldn't, like, they, they have to do something about the ratio of, of male reviewers in so many of newspapers. Like, something that you wrote about Chris Krause's work and just this feeling of using that, that, I don't know if you wrote or if it was in I Love Dick, but, like, using your own life, using your real name, it's feminist. There's something about that that's feminist. I don't know what, maybe you can explain. But uh, it, it's, it's, so, um, it's so despised by people. It's so mm -hmm. like, well, mm -hmm. if, it, if you didn't create it, then you didn't actually work hard. And you did, if you didn't fictionalize, you didn't do the work. But it's still about a woman. I mean, it's like if a guy does it, it's really kind of They're slacker They're like nominated and for, the cool. Pulitzer, for the Pulitzer yeah. Prize, and quite literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like, yeah. Mike, I mean, Mike Kelly and all those guys yeah. doing kind of weird emo work. Or, or what about my struggle? Like, hi, I'm a dude. I'm going to write a fucking eight-volume memoir. I, oh, my God. I, no, I know. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I think that I like his writing very much, actually, but I just was like, the fucking entitlement. Can you imagine if I wrote a fucking eight memoirs and called it My Struggle? <laughs> no, please do. Please just, please that's do. it. I mean, that's like, it. it's an amazing thought that a human being could think about their existence in great detail and talk about <laughs> it for hundreds of pages. I'm like, We've been doing that for 20 or 30 years. Look at everyone around me has been doing and that for part, like... Part of it is that we're still not fucking human. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what... I mean, like... Right? It really least, is that, yeah. So it really true. is that. Yeah. I mean, when I published Chelsea Girls, I remember some dude reviewing it in the, you know, in San Francisco paper, and it was just like, I don't know, I'm having a hard time just reading about her lesbian daily life. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, how is that fucking different from David Wanarovich's gay daily life? Right. You know? It was just dicks like, in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, that, I mean, and I the, thing think, that's, the yeah. thing that's so weird is I'm lying too. It's not like I've been writing about Eileen Miles for like, you know, 30 or 40 years, but it's like, it's not exactly Eileen. I just, I just think that like, why do I have to make up a character's name? Yeah. You know, like I have a character, I'll use her. You know, <laughs> but it's always a little off. It's always like she's a little smarter than Eileen, or a little yeah. stupider, or has a little worse sex, or a little better sex. Yeah. I feel like it's been like kind of blend all these totally. years, and then slowly, I think it's true. Then you start to, like, you start to leave her a little bit. You know, like you wrote, you've written fiction. You wrote yeah. a, a Rose of No Man's Land. Yeah, that felt so much like it was real, though. I remember reading that on the airplane and like falling in love with you. I think uh -huh. I emailed you from the airplane. Sometimes when you read a book on the airplane, you fall in love with the writer even more. It's such a special place to like, read. I was crying, and I was like, oh, I'm God. in love with Michelle T. I yeah. need to tell her when the plane lands. <laughs> yeah. no, that that <laughs> book twinkles. It just oh. twinkles with life, because it's everything you do, but it's like this little jeweled version of it and stuff. Mm. I love that book so Thank much. Thank you, you, guys. I was so terrified. It was the first time I wasn't writing memoir, and I was so scared that I was creating a world that wouldn't be believable, mm. which is something I never had to think about before, because I was like, well, it's what happened. And if you think it's not believable, I don't know what to say, because that's what happened, you know? But this, I was like, oh, God. I was, like, so aware of, like, 
what would the light look like? What would the air smell like? Like I got really obsessive with it. Uh -huh. You know, I probably didn't need to get that obsessive, but maybe it's good that I did. I don't know. I mean, that's that's uh, that's an interesting problem to have. It seems if you've if you've already been been doing it right when you've been working on memoir, when it, or when it comes more naturally when mm -hmm. when you're working on memoir, but then when you switch over into to fiction and you you start sort of second guessing those decisions more, or, or there's maybe different stakes involved. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if, if maybe you could talk a little more about that. I think that I a big impetus for me writing memoir was like I wanted to tell the truth. Like I wanted it to be authentic. I wanted to tell the truth, and and because um, I felt like my particular experience, like I hadn't seen it published a lot. It felt very political. It felt very meaningful, and so. I had this sort of like reality fetish. And so then moving into fiction, I kind of brought that with me a little bit. And since then, I've realized like, I mean, you still need to make things believable, but I actually don't need to like, I'm also creating this world and I can say, this world is like this because I'm saying it's like this and I'm the writer. Like I don't have to, you know, someone's not gonna read it and be like, I don't know, the quality of light seems weird in that scene. I'm having a hard time believing that this would actually happen. You know, it's like, you, it's fiction. You can actually make ridiculous things happen. And, you know, ideally, if it's, I don't know, compelling in some way, the reader will follow you. So I've kind of loosened up a little bit with that, yeah. See, I, see, I just never, I never ever believe, people always review my books and say it's memoir. And it's like, I have never written a memoir. Uh -huh. I, I write fiction. It's absolutely not, I just, because I feel like it's just, maybe part of it is the way I feel about life, like I feel like it's a dream. And so I feel like, and I don't remember. I don't, I mean, I sort of remember that night that this happened and that happened, but I don't entirely remember. Also, I was drunk. Right. <laughs> so at a yeah. certain point, yeah. I feel like I start making up what could have happened, and then I think maybe I'm remembering. But I just feel like I know I'm, as a person, an unreliable narrator. So as That's a writer, so great. <laughs> I'm absolutely that. So, and my new book is about my pit bull Rosie, who died in 2006. And so it's it's really it's not that much of a stretch to go over here and be my dog, you know, because I feel like I was always a little bit out of my own borders, my own boundaries. So suddenly it's sort of like somebody that I looked at for a long time, instead of it being me that I looked at, it's my dog that I looked at, or my dog that looked at me. And so it's just it's just kind of. Um, it's like, the, it's like the camera just moved uh -huh. to a whole other character, but it doesn't feel that different at all, uh -huh. you know? Um, and she remembers the world differently. So it's, it's great. Oh, God. Uh, and of course, she is, is, is my dead father, my dead alcoholic father, <laughs> which is, you know, part, you know, you have an animal. <laughs> you have an animal, and they're never just your cat. You know, it's Napoleon. You know, or, you know, my, my people, when I got Rosie, I just looked in her eyes. And my dad died when I was 11, and he's kind of a fetish in my, my whole dream story. And it's like when I looked in the dog's eyes, I was like, it's, it's dad. Mm. And he would totally come back as my dog to hang out for 20 years or whatever. Oh, my God. So it was just so easy to then write a chapter, my father came again as a dog, and then start talking mm. about how dogs, how, you know, how people come back as dogs and who dogs are and what creation is. And suddenly oh you just, in this whole, I mean, you've written, wow. I mean, I just finished reading your book of, Fan, that goes into fantasy, yeah. and I think it's so, I mean, like, because it's what we do. I mean, pajama parties were the beginning of writing. Mm -hmm. 
you stay up all night. The first drug was like sleeplessness. Mm -hmm. Right. And like all those kind of weird things you would do, like you would hold each other's chests in and hyperventilate. Oh, yeah. yeah. And all those weird ways. And then you'd tell stories, uh -huh. you know, weird stories and make stuff up yeah. and everything. And I feel like that's what writing is. And it's, you know, after doing it for a long time, you start to have permission to get really weird. Yeah, it's really true. You know, I've yeah. earned it now. Yeah. You know, I'm like, you know. <laughs> totally. But it was always there. It just never really opened the door, you know. Oh, that's so and you just finished that book. I just finished that book, oh, yeah, so, so I feel very it. high on it. Yeah. yeah. And I call it a memoir. Are you really? Yes. 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 Finally, first, uh, Eileen finally wrote memoir. a memoir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. um, I just I wanted to give you a chance to, to chime in, Jill, if you wanted to on sort of. What are we talking about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you sort of touched on it earlier in, in saying that, you know, each of these characters is, has like part of you in them, but you can see yourself in them to some degree. Um, just to, the, in, in drawing from your own life to create this this fictional world. You mean transparent? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was awkward at first. I mean, I remember actually it was on, in Sister's Fit where I first read the first essay about my parent coming out. And it was so soon, it was so early. I don't even think I even recognized the trans politics of talking about it on stage without um, having their permission. You know, it was uh -huh. so new for me. Yeah. I think you were one of the first people I called, actually, after yeah, they came out. Yeah, I think so. I remember yeah. where I was talking about it. Yeah, I do too. too. I, I was, was just like, like, oh, Jill makes so much more sense now. I know. It was, I was like, Michelle, we, I've figured me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what, yeah. Um, I was in the parking lot of Skylight Books in LA yes. when I, I called you. Um, yeah, you know, there's also this thing that happens in Hollywood when you're like writing scripts. You always, like, you always have this thing where you're like, I'm writing a script, I'm going to base it on this real thing and this real person. Um, should I call them and tell them that I'm writing a script about them, or should I wait mm -hmm. and see if, it, if anybody ever makes it? And so like early days, I would call people and be like, I want to write a TV pilot or a TV script about you. And they'd be like, OK, well, let me read it, or let me have some say in it, or am I thin? Like, they want to <laughs> they know, you know how it turns out for them. And then it would never happen. It would be a total waste of time. You would have like, told people you know, that you're obsessed with them in a way that you never needed to tell them. Um, <laughs> and so then I stopped telling people that I was writing about them because it, was, it almost became this dare, like, I'm going to write a thing that's going to be so clearly about this person that I know, and I'm, like, daring the universe to actually make this show so that then I'll have to go to them and tell them. Um, like, outing yourself, you know, about a crush or an obsession. And then when I started writing Transparent, it was early in my parents, you know, public life. Like right now, they're totally loving being sort of like, hey, you're the real life Mappa. Can I take a picture with you? Um, they're totally into it now. But for like, yeah, the first year, they were not, they were not super excited. And yet I kind of knew that it was going to happen. You know, I could feel that this show had a, I could just feel this kind of like tide, like mm -hmm. yanking it into the consciousness. It was like the right time and the right show. Um, so I think the first thing I told my parent was that I was doing a show about a family, and it's going to be sort of like our family. <laughs> I didn't really say, it's about a parent who transitions and is called transparent. Uh, yeah, I kind of left that out. Um, and then <laughs> I'm remembering some hilarious conversations now where they were like, I think I had the parent be a professor. And they were like, what's the parent going to be? And, you know, because my parent was a doctor. And I was like, they're going to be a professor. And my parent was like, couldn't they be a fireman? I'm like, Dad, they're Jewish. <laughs> they're not going to be a fireman. Um, <laughs> anything else? A pharmacist? 
like, they have to be an intellectual, you know? So, you know, when you write about people, if you let them know, it's a way of letting them know, you know, how you feel about them, what you're thinking about them, and I don't know. I think it's better, actually, to never get permission, never tell anybody it's about mm -hmm. them, let them go to the store and buy the book, and, you know, imagine that it might be about them, and I guess, you know, it turned out okay with, with Transparent. Um, I, I definitely feel like I'm everybody, you know, I'm for sure a, a bunch of Allie and a bunch of Sarah, but also I totally relate to Josh, you know. I, I, I get Josh's struggle of like, you know, not never wanting to give up the feeling of like falling in love every day. You know, I, I always wanted to write a show about somebody who fell in love with somebody new every day. And uh, that's what, I feel like that's who Josh is. Um, and I, I feel like Maura too, and I feel like Shelley, so. Yeah, I think, I think that's like, it's, just, it's the same thing for me as writing journals or writing fiction or writing an essay or writing a rant. Like, there has to be that feeling in it of that drive and that like desire and, and the sharing of the desire through the movement and through the action. And um, I have to be in it, no, you know, no matter who, no matter which character it is. Great. Well, I think we have uh, some time for questions from the audience. Uh, Gravity has a microphone. Thank you all for uh, coming tonight. Question for Jill. Do you, do you find that after you've cast uh, your show, do the actors inspire you or influence the, the outcome of, of the show? in any way, or have you already decided that this is what's going to happen and these actors are going to follow that? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Should I pretend like I don't know you, Billy? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Billy. It's my friend. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean it. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's they, the Pfeffermans are like these, I feel like they're these souls who exist out in the universe and they've kind of, they've kind of chosen me and the writers, and they kind of, you know, I feel like we get sort of inhabited by them. You know, like they're like these souls or these ghosts that take us and tell us what to write and move our fingers onto the, you know, keyboard and publish these scripts for them. And they also tell me what actors they want to speak there, you know, to want me to cast. And there's only one actor for each part, you know. And um, yeah, Gabby, it, you know, she is. She is Allie, and, and Amy is Sarah, and, and Jay is Josh, and you know, Maura is Jeffrey, and Shelly is Judith, and yes, as they start to embody the characters and, and find their them, it's really, it's, there's very little like um, planning. It's all listening, it's all listening, and mm. listening to what the characters want and what they want to do and how they want to surprise me, and, and the actors are, are the same way. They bring their bodies, we bring the words, and the characters have their own, their own DNA out in the world. That's great, they're all, it's all listening. Yeah, That's beautiful. 100%, yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, court stenographer. I'm like a court stenographer who's like getting an early, an early look at the episodes. That's what I feel like. Like the episodes are playing in my brain and I'm just like getting to take dictation. Huh. Yeah, it's cool. I think it was Michelle who said um, that you don't imagine writing for an audience, but I'm, I'm curious to hear from each of you if, there, if you imagine that you're writing for someone or who you imagine writing for, like even if it's just one other person in conversation with them and you know, how you imagine them responding to what you're writing. I think 
it can be kind of dangerous, I think, for me to think too hard about who I'm writing for because you really don't know. And, you, I mean, you kind of want your, ideally you want your book to just get out there as far and wide as possible, so why limit yourself in a funny way? Like when I first started writing, I think I was writing for some version of my own self, you know? And then I was writing for Eileen. And now I feel like I'm doing two different kinds of writing. I'm either writing for Eileen or I'm writing for my agent. <laughs> very different, very different work, That's very different funny. work. The writing I'm doing for my agent, I would never do for Eileen, you know, huh. so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I love that. God. I feel like I don't know who I'm writing for, but, but I feel like writing has so much to do with my friendships and people that, um, and so when I'm writing, it's like, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now at NYU called performance, but what it means is the performance of writing. Like the act, I mean, it's, it's improv, right? The, the act mm -hmm. of doing it, you know? You don't know what's gonna happen and what's gonna come out and you just keep going. And I'm just about covering pages in a way, you know? And I feel like when I'm writing, when you hit your stride and you're high and it's really going, I start to think of different people who would really like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, I was like, this is really funny. Oh, and blah, 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 would really get off on this one. And I start talking to them for a while and amusing them for a while. And then I kind of segue over here. So there's a lot of, like, a sense of a, a shift. Yeah, it's a shifting audience, I think, of, of kind of conversations. Like, one of my favorite things I've heard, like, John Ashbery say something about some one great work of his. Um, he said that he wrote the whole piece, like, distinctly to all these different people. Like, he knew who he was talking to, and now he doesn't remember who they were at all. Mm. You know, but they were all these, all these intimacies, you know, that are just sort of gone, but forever there, like. Um. Um, I, w I just wanted to remember, I'm, like, note this thing that Ali Lieba got put on our, our, it's across the top of our board in our writer's room that she said that you said, which is, um, you are writing the forest that you aren't even lost in yet. Oh, wow. Is that what you said? Yeah. So beautiful. <laughs> if you ever get inspired to say something beautiful, say it to Allie, because she'll remember it's it forever. So beautiful. And then she'll like repeat it back to me. I'm like, I can't believe I said that. Yeah. <laughs> so Genius. deep. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So deep. Yeah. It's I true though. That. She was getting so stressed out about like that she didn't know what her book was. And I'm just like, of course you don't. You're on like page five. Like yeah. of course you don't know what your book is. And it's yeah. gonna get worse before it gets better, you know. Yeah. But I love that you're writing the forest, you're not writing the book. You're writing the place where you're going to get lost, and that's so inspiring. Um, so speaking of, uh, you know, the revolution, uh, my question's for Jill. I heard you on Fresh Air in your interview, and it was really interesting because I found that Terry Gross was really struggling with the gender pronouns in talking about the show and about your parent. And I thought you were so gracious in how you kind of corrected her and talked about it. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that particular experience, maybe how you prepared her in advance, and then in general, in the Hollywood world, um, I don't know, experiences you've had as you increase kind of trans visibility and encounter Hollywood people and talk yeah. about pronouns? Well, it's really, it's definitely changing. I mean, I was super excited to be on Fresh Air. Um, I thought I was gonna meet her. Turns out she doesn't meet anybody. What? Even if you go to Philadelphia, you're in a room next to her. Wow. What? That's like yeah. Oz. It's like the yeah. Wizard of NPR. Like, who is Terry Gross? <laughs> I was uh, not so excited. Real. I was so excited. Huh. And uh, it took a minute because, you know, I had to talk to her producers a little bit, you know, and um, it was early on, and I try to not say too much about, you know, my own personal story about my parents coming out. And so uh, I had to sort of do some navigating about what I wouldn't talk about, wouldn't, wouldn't talk about. There was a moment there where I thought I was going to get canceled because, like, there were certain things I didn't want to talk about, but then it happened. Um, it was so exciting. I mean, she's Terry Gross. 
I went in a room, and I, I, there she was in my ears. I was like, hi, Jill. I'm Terry Gross. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, there was like a, I, don't, I didn't listen to it because I get scared to listen to stuff. Also, my son accuses me of having radio voice. He's always like, you had radio voice again. You've got to stop this, Mom. Um, <laughs> but um, there was a part where she was talking about, she was like, we were talking about femininity and performance of femininity. And did it end up where I was like, what are you wearing right now, Terry Gross? Did that, I don't think, I think she cut that out. <laughs> I'm, wearing my, I'm wearing a sweater and some jeans. Um, <laughs> but um, was that in there? Oh, it was? Okay. I'm wearing a fleece vest. <laughs> I, want, I wanted attention. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> very pretend. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know what? I'm happy to correct people on the pronouns because people don't get it, and it's fine to do it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and people are slowly starting to get it. Although now that Bruce has asked to be to use a, Bruce Jenner's asked to use a male pronoun, it's sort of like, oh, it's a, what are you going to do now? You know, it's like if if Bruce Jenner had asked to use them or they or she, I think it would have been a real sort of a little bit of a, a forward movement. But um, so everybody's misgendering everybody right now all over again, and that seems to be the trend at the moment. Um, and in some ways, it, the, the Bruce Jenner thing kind of just threw everything up in the air. There, the, it sort of became so popular. It mm. became so like, uh, I think to me the surprising thing was like I think before the Bruce Jenner thing happened, I was like expecting the sort of Twitterverse to be sort of half and half. You know, some people were going to be like, you go girl, and some people were going to be like, this is not okay. It was 100% positive, and I realized the value of a gold medal. It's like, the Olympics, we love you. Mm -hmm. You got us a gold medal, whatever you want. You know, like, yeah, Bruce, like, gold medals are like, <laughs> it's, it's more important than whatever might have come before in terms of, you know, people not feeling tolerant. It really just kind of like, boom, pushed everything over. And now, um, I'm sure all of the trans people who are in my world are just like, oh, every, everybody, there, there's almost this like sort of onslaught of like, where are the trans writers? Where are the trans actors? Where are the trans producers? Like, all the trans people I know, I'm like, I'm, I gave your phone number to somebody today. I gave your, your email to the person at BuzzFeed. Like, everybody's, this is why everybody's coming down from San Francisco. Like, there's this thing in Hollywood where, you know, people, the sort of like the queer vocabulary is shifting and um, it's amazing, you know, it's, 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 there's a gold rush in some ways, I feel like. There's gold Have you thought about becoming down an there. agent? What was that? Have you thought about becoming an agent? I feel like I should. Didn't like, um, I think like, there's like, didn't Sean Combs or something do that for? I feel like, I, yeah, I could totally rep all the trans people coming to LA and help them. Um, but you know, um, it's, it's slow going. I mean, most of the people that you have conversations with are gonna be white cis males. That's 95% of the people. And you just have to slowly but surely um, remind them. I, I actually, th I think the world is shifting in a way where now people are saying, like, I want women, I need women, I need people of color, I need trans people, I need queer people. The, it is shifting now where, where it's really noticeable if people have all male staffs or if people have all white casts. Or it's, it's, there, there is a shift happening where there's a craving for people who have been otherized. Hi, I have a question for Jill. I'm so excited I won the last question contest. Um, I have a question for Jill. So Jill, I love Transparent so much. It's so heartbreaking, beautiful. I'm almost gonna cry just like talking about it. Um, 
I don't want to offend you, but I kind of noticed that the the adult children are like really messed up. This is what I said. Everybody thinks um, they're assholes. <laughs> I'm they're sorry, all like but me. I have a problem with like all of them in different ways, <laughs> and it's just how it is. So I'm just wondering, um, how did you decide like what brand of messed up each one of them was going to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean they just. Where did they come from? Where did their messed up come from? I mean, you don't have to be too personal about it, but I'm just like curious if you yeah, can generally um, answer that. I mean, uh, they're. So I made this movie called Afternoon Delight. The producer, Jen Chaikin, is here. Hey, Jen, shout out. San Francisco's own. San Francisco's, San Francisco's own Jewish Jen Chaikin. We're in a Jewish museum. Perfect that you're here. She produced uh, Afternoon Delight, and that was about a sort of like Silver Lake mom who brought home a stripper and sort of vaguely lesbian, you know, yearnings and longings. And, I think Sarah is basically like Rachel right after that movie ends. Like that was the sort of continuation of Rachel. Hmm. Same school, same, same sort of house, same life, same husband. Um, Allie is like who I was when I was in my, I don't know, 20s, or just getting high and seeing what happened. <laughs> <laughs> like smoke pot, have sex with people you don't know very well. <laughs> Took up about a decade. Gave, gave that to Allie. Um, and yeah, Josh is, uh, Josh is that feeling, of, yeah, I, I, you know, I th something I really realized when I was writing the pilot is the show is, the show is about a family where there were um, no boundaries, but all, see uh, um, wait, wait, what was it? It was all secrets and no boundaries. That's what it was, all mm. secrets and no boundaries. And the question that was being asked was, now that the secret is gone, where are we going to find our boundaries? The secret became the boundary between these people. They all grew up in this house. And when there's something that you don't know about somebody in your house, that secret is the boundary. It's keeping everybody from each other. It's like this ring that kept them all from each other. They couldn't, they couldn't touch each other. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't be themselves. They didn't know why. The truth comes out. Dad's a woman secret is lifted. Now we all have to find our boundaries. Now we all have to figure out where we end and where others begin. Let's figure out how to start to see each other, name ourselves, be ourselves without this really comfortable boundary that kept us from each other. I think of it like this almost like ring of light that kept them from each other. Um, so that's, that, that to me was, was the sort of guiding, a guiding mythos around this season. And as I said, like everybody I write is some version of me and also the writers on the show, it's some version of them. But, um, you know, I think everybody's, everybody's longing to be seen. Everybody's asking the question, will you still love me if you see me? Mm. Thank you. Nice end, Jill. Yeah. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's keep it going for our, our wonderful panelists.